0: This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by Athon Books. Check out the very best in science fiction and fantasy at com. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Weiss, Sheriff Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Robin Mock,
1: Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherilyn
0: Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am really excited to have Will Dean on the show with me today. He has an amazing new book. It's called The Last Thing to Burn. And uh, I, I'll tell you what, if you are a thriller lover like I am, this book is going to blow your mind. And uh, this this is a must-have uh, for your uh, to-be-read pile, for sure. This is uh, You need to get your hands on it as soon as it's available. That's uh, in... In the States, it comes out in April. In in the UK and in uh, Australia, it's available now when you're hearing this. And uh, so, yeah, this
1: is a must-have. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you very much, Hank. It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's good to have you. Uh, Will, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
1: Man, that's a good question. Um, for me, it's a bit complex because I was a reader for so many years, and I never imagined being a writer. Uh, I didn't have the confidence or the kind of background for that. I was brought up in the Midlands of the UK in a kind of blue-collar town, probably equivalent of somewhere, some little town in Iowa, like a really agricultural area. Yeah. And none of my family went to school past the age of fifteen or sixteen, so I was the weird bookish black sheep of the family you know and they all thought I was very strange for wanting to read but I was a huge reader as a kid my mom was good enough to take me to like a mobile library truck to take out as many books as I could but there were no books in the house at all and it wasn't until I was in my 30s like well into my 30s that I thought maybe I need to write a story like maybe this is something I can do and I didn't tell anybody I was going to try because I thought they would think it was ridiculous. You know, people from my background don't become writers. Uh, So I did it kind of in secret.
0: So what was, uh, you know, as as a kid who is is bookish, but had uh, limited availability of books around, what were some of those stories that just really captured your imagination? Was was there a particular author, uh, a a particular series, or a particular book that just really kind of, you know, uh, cracked your brain open, you know, so to speak, that, that let you know that this is this is a world you wanted to be a part of?
1: Cracking your brain open is a good way to describe it. That's exactly what <laughs> happened. I mean, I was just a voracious reader. I was, uh, like, literally, the book in the house was the Argos catalog, which I don't know if, it's, if there's an equivalent in the U.S., like a mail-order catalog. That's what I read when I couldn't get a hold of books. But I was reading... A huge amount of Roald Dahl as a little kid and rereading Roald Dahl, which I think is brilliant. Like His writing is so dark and humorous and just a real treat for a kid. And then I got into Sue Townsend, who's the British author, writing the Adrian Mole series, which are very funny. And then I got into Stephen King at a very young age. Like most of my author friends, he was the spark, really. And I got him to hear, I, I got into his books at an age where I probably shouldn't have but I'm glad I did. <laughs> and I've I heard was just, so
0: many people say that. You know, I, I was exposed to King when I really shouldn't have.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, they're so, I don't know, attractive if you're a young teenager. And he's, he, Stephen King's got a lot to answer for, you know, a whole generation or two of, of writers. Yeah, so I was I was very, like, obsessed with his books. And then... The big moment, the big turning point, was for me was when I was about fifteen in the summer, working on a fruit farm, picking fruit, and I had a day in in this little hut where I was selling fruit, but it was raining, and I had a, I had some books with me. I think I had a couple of days in there, and I read Train Spotting by Irvine Welsh and I read Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, back to back. And that really did kind of, as you say, crack my brain open. I was I was deep in at that point. I was a, a lifelong reader, right there.
0: What an odd combination <laughs> um, of, of things to read back to back. Um, uh, not that either one of those are odd, but what an what an interesting mix. Um, yeah. What do you think? Um, you know, uh, of, of those that those two stories. Um, in particular, uh, what do you think it was about that, that just kind of lit the spark?
1: I mean, it's partly the fact that they are, they are mad books. They're wild. It's the storytelling is wild. If you think of Frankenstein written back then, all the way back then by a woman, it was a revolutionary act. It was a radical piece of literature and it's, it's a fantastically immersive book. You know, you feel like you're in the mountains with the snow in that novel. And the same with train spotting. Like, I've never been to that part of Edinburgh or Leith where the book is set. And I've never lived amongst that kind of world, that kind of heroin world. But I was right there reading that book, you know, in a hut in a windswept hill in, in the middle of England. But I was right there in those tenement buildings in, in Scotland. And the voice of that, of that storytelling is incredible. Irvine yeah. Welsh, she writes in this thick, impenetrable, scottish accent and that's bold storytelling right there like most authors get told don't go too heavy on the dialect well he did not listen to that he just went with what was right in his gut and it took me maybe 50 pages to understand the prose and what was going on but as soon as it clicked and i i understood what i was reading i was i was deep in there i was immersed in that world and that's what i'm looking for as a reader and also as a writer, you know, to go to just get lost in an imaginary world. That's what it's all about.
0: Will, do I understand correctly that you studied law at one point?
1: I did, yeah. I was one of those typical first kids to go to university types. So, yeah, I went to university and my family were like, they were against it. They were like, why don't you just get a job? And I was like, no, I think I'm going to go to London and see what I can do and study. And so their condition was basically like, you've got to study something that leads directly to a job which is fair enough. I think if I had my own way I'd have studied history history or english or something but I studied law and that was interesting and then I I did a lot of weird jobs for many years in London like as soon as I graduated I freaked out when everybody else went to like good jobs in offices and I was like I'm very outdoorsy so I didn't want to do that so I ended up working on the streets of London for 2 years selling discount haircut coupons. <laughs> seven days a week in all weathers, like the weirdest job. And my friends and my family were like, what the hell are you doing with your life? And for me, it was just a reaction against that um, idea of working in an office the rest of my life, which would have been a much probably better decision. But in hindsight, talking to strangers all day long, trying to sell them these haircut coupons, that was a really good basis for you know me building characters now in my story, so I don't regret it.
0: You know, um, there's there's a, a, a common thread, uh, you know, amongst writers is that uh, there's there's usually an experience where they got to meet lots of different people and and characters, uh, you know, form. Uh, did, did you have any inkling when it was going on that, you know, as you meet people? Oh, I I'm going to I'm definitely going to take this characteristic from this person or. Or did did you notice odd things about people in the moment, or is it only later when you reflect back on it that that you realize you had kind of collected this cast of characters?
1: It's only now, really, that I that I realize what was happening. I think you know at that time I was literally just trying to sell a coupon to pay my rent, so <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't thinking, oh, this is an interesting bit of dialogue here. No way, I was just trying to to make some money, but from an early age, as a little kid, I have always considered myself as an observer of people and not really a participant in life. I was more of a watcher. Like as a kid, I was very shy and socially awkward. I was kind of, I felt like an alien (laughs) amongst humans. And I was kind of watching these little humans trying to figure out what they wanted in life and what their secrets were and what their backgrounds were and what was going on here. And I'm, I'm still in essence, trying to figure that out now. And that's, that's what I do through my stories is I'm trying to figure out, you know, a character or a couple of characters in each book and trying to go deep and figure out what they're all about. I'm trying to understand humans. Same when I was a kid, same when I was trying to sell those coupons, same thing.
0: So from, from selling haircut coupons, to living in rural Sweden? How, how does that happen?
1: <laughs> Good question. Uh, so I was in, we were in London for 15 years in total, lived in a tiny little one bedroom flat, which was fine, but it was very small. And I'm from a very, like I said, a very rural area. My wife is Swedish. And so I wanted to move back to somewhere very quiet. And she maybe thought it was time to move back to Sweden. So we agreed, let's try and live in a forest off-grid, live a very simple, low-cost life. So we found on the internet this swampy piece of land in the middle of a moose forest. It was very cheap because no Swedes wanted to live here. There was no access road, no water, no toilets, no anything. And we came here, we flew over on like a $10 ticket from the UK. The real estate agent picked us up from the airport. He was that desperate to sell this piece of land that's been on the market for years. He drove us here. The, the, the car stopped like five kilometers away. We hiked through the snow to get to here. And what we found was just like this hole in the forest with no neighbors, no, any, no, nobody anywhere near. And I fell in love with it immediately. And my wife, bless her, she said, if you want to do this, then let's do it. But like, let's have a deal. So if in six months' time, I'm terrified living here then we're going to sell this and we're going to move to a town like like normal people. And that's the deal we struck. And uh, it it took us a while to get this place going. Like we had to drain the land and I had to put in some kind of dirt track. And, and then we built like a flat pack, IKEA style home, wooden house, which is the Swedish way. And I did a lot of the work myself. And then... We've lived here now full-time for nearly 10 years, and we kind of live semi-off-grid, semi-self-sufficient, grow a lot of our food, and we have our own well. Uh, we use firewood for heating and cooking, and it's it's a good place to read and write. We can kind of walk in any direction from our clearing for about a full day, and we're still in the forest. Wow. that That is amazing. Um-
0: So will uh, you know, all of this is going on where you're, uh, literally, uh, trying to survive and, and build a homestead for you and your family. And, um, and you know, I would imagine that's, that's pretty, um, uh, you know, that sort of work can consume your, your living, uh, at what point during all this did, did the the pull to to write, uh, you know, start start tugging on you because the, you know, this was not uh from from you know your own story, this was not something that you uh, you know, had had left a life of writing and then went uh you know to this uh sort of new solitude. Um but d- did did the writing bug catch you when you were uh you know in the midst of all of this in Sweden or or when did that happen?
1: I think subconsciously in the back of my head of my mind when when I found this place and when we decided to move here that's when I started to realize that I wanted to write but I had no idea if, if that would work out so for the first few uh first first year really here I was just you know had my carpenter hat on that's all I was doing and <clears throat> and I was reading voraciously then I was reading a lot like audiobooks working outside in the woods but with an audiobook on the whole time like, I remember building the windows for, for our home, having, uh, or finishing that project, having uh, The Secret History by Donna Tartt read by her on audiobook. And that's such a strong memory for me now, kind of finishing that last window, listening to her voice, which is incredible, and that book, which is incredible. So I was reading a lot and I was, I was kind of psyching myself up to write, but I hadn't really told anybody at that point apart from my wife. And then I wrote a book which was terrible. And (laughs) that book is my kind of apprenticeship novel, and that's now locked in a drawer forever. But that's a book that took me like a few years to write, and I was uh, submitting it to agents and getting rejected quite rightly uh, by like every agent. And uh, that was my learning experience. I haven't done any creative writing courses, but I rewrote that bad book so many times. It was such a painful experience. Resubmitted it, rewrote it got a bad book to the point where it was okay and agents were starting to get interested in it and then i pulled it from submission pulled it from them and i decided nope, i do not want this to be my debut novel and then i wrote my debut novel uh, which was called dark pines and that's how i got an agent with that book
0: authors i have a fantastic new service to tell you about it's called PubSite. Pubsite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. Pubsite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. Pubsite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, YourName.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy it affects your resolve and your productivity and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true that's why sophie created the dream author coaching program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build think about and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally And advocate for the rest of their writing life and more great news once you've learned that skill it lasts forever visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today so will um i I like to ask people um kind of their thoughts on audiobooks uh, now because this is you know such a growth market in publishing right now and um we're kind of at that golden age even though audiobooks have been around a long time um for whatever reason the the stars have aligned uh in a way that that they're you know, really popular right now maybe it's maybe it's the um the advent of of earbuds and and that a lot of people are walking around with with something stuck in their ear a lot of time and uh you know audiobooks are a perfect um place for that uh but you have this really great um, story of an experience with audiobooks that actually kind of helped to to springboard you in a way. Um, how, how do you feel about audiobooks and, you know, other than this this personal connection you have with it? But what do you think about the market uh, kind of it, at large uh, and, and how audiobooks books are, are becoming uh, really a thing with the with the larger population?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, first and foremost, I'm just a fan of being told a story. You know, it's, I think it's a real primal pleasure that dates back, you know, tens of thousands of years. People kind of sitting around a fire telling each other a story. So if the narrator is right and the story is right, that's a very immersive experience. I mean, I remember sure. listening to Bill Bryson's books on tape in my Walkman as like a <laughs> t- late teenager. That's not a cool look. That's not a a cool thing. But (laughs) I was a very early adoptee of audiobooks back when they were expensive and like difficult and you had to carry around five tapes with you. Um, In terms of the market, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't even think about the market. I'm not interested so much in the market. I think my editor is an expert in that, my publicist, my agent. I distance myself from all of the business side of things because... I'm just about the stories, my stories. I'm just about reading and writing. And I find that if I was to get too deep into that side of things, which I understand is really interesting for so many people, it's just it might cloud how I write or might influence how I write. So I don't give it any thought, none at all. I'm just i literally here in the woods trying to write interesting stories, and the market does what the market does, and I kind of just leave it to do what it does.
0: Do you feel like you have an advantage over a lot of other people who might be living, you know, in a city and, uh, you know, with with a uh, an outrageous uh, rent payment that has to be has to be made every month? And and the bills and and all of the um, all the things that that tug at you constantly that you have to overcome to become a writer because of your situation of where you live and the circumstances Around where you live, do you feel like that frees you up in a way that, that you don't have to care about the market? Uh, because that that is a lot of people's dream to to be able to to write freely like that. Um, do, does it strike you that that you are in this really unique situation?
1: In a way, but I got to say, it's like a dream and a nightmare all at once in reality, because you might think to yourself, Jesus, that sounds great to go and write books and like not have any distractions. And on one, in one level it is, but on the other level, I'm working my butt off chopping right. wood and hauling wood, cutting down trees and repairing my road and repairing my well pump and clearing ditches and all this stuff. And like if I lived in London in the, in the flat that I used to live in, I think I would have more free time, honestly. There's more distractions in terms of like you're attracted to things that consume your time, you know, movies and theatres and friends and pubs and all those wonderful things that I really miss. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like two sides of the same coin. I'm lucky in that I've got no distractions here, apart from my kid and my St. Bernard and my Norwegian forest cat and my wife. Um, but at the same time, I've got a lot more things that I need to do, a lot more responsibilities just to keep this place from sinking into the swamp. So, right. yeah, I'm. it's definitely, I'm privileged in that uh, I do live a low-cost life and that does maybe free me up from worrying too much about book sales so I get to write what I want to write and I'm just lucky that the book sales are there. But at the same time, we did this, on purpose consciously you know it would have been yeah. easier to stay in london and we just were like let's let's try this out what's the worst that can happen the worst that can happen is we we sell it and we 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 don't do this anymore right and Stephen, you know stephen king on in on writing he says you can't be half-hearted about writing you've got to like give up your tv and we gave, we gave up our tv for four years no tv at all so i could double the amount of reading i was doing and i think he's he's absolutely right like if you want to do it seriously you, you've got to give up something or you've got to throw yourself at it completely
0: will as as someone who grew up in the in the uk midlands uh, and now lives uh, in the middle of a forest in sweden um, i'm i'm fascinated by how a sense of place um, affects the things that we write or or maybe comes out in stories that we tell or you know that that we're influenced by where we're from and uh do you feel like that the stories that you tell are influenced by either where you were born and raised uh or where you live now do, do you feel like your surroundings uh come out in the stories you tell
1: yeah for sure absolutely i mean the 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 series i i write in the uk is set in sweden in a fairly similar situation to where i live you know in 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 the wilderness in a small town, in a small Twin Peaks style town. And then the last thing to burn is set in the Fens, which is this flat marshland, agricultural land, which is pretty much where I'm from in the UK. So so far, all the books have been set with areas that I'm very familiar with. And that's partly because I'm a really visual writer. So I have to see the story, see the character in the landscape before I can start thinking about how that story develops, and, and then write it. So yeah, the landscape and the sense of place is hugely important to me in terms of what I write and also in terms of what I look for when I'm reading. Um, but now you get to a point as a writer where you have to break free of that. So my next standalone book, which will be out next year, is set in New York. That was me getting out of my comfort zone and pushing myself. I love it.
0: The the new book, The Last Thing to Burn, is a standalone novel, as you mentioned. Um, but you also mentioned that you write a series. Um, and uh, the, the series kicked off with that first book that you published, Dark Pines. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Dark Pines was published in 2018. And it's about a deaf journalist in a small, creepy little isolated town in central Sweden. And it's got a very kind of Stephen King, Castle Rock vibe. Or a bit of a Twin Peaks vibe. It's a, it's a little town where everybody knows each other. And there are strange things going on. And Tuva has to go into the woods to, to solve mysteries. And it's a real pleasure writing that series. But then it's, it's been a huge pleasure writing The Last Thing to Burn. Because that was me feeling super liberated and kind of sp- spreading my wings. And, and being able to write a new character, a new point of view character, which was just a real joy so the the tuba series that you
0: write um uh, uh, castle rock um um uh, or uh twin peaks uh y- you mentioned these sort of almost fantastical settings where um they look completely normal yet we realize pretty quickly that there's something going on kind of behind the thing and um it, you know it it dips its toe almost into fantasy in a way. Um and The Last Thing to Burn is is very much a, a visceral um kind of immediate uh you can put your hands on it sort of novel. Uh what do you think about the 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 difference in these two in, in the sort of Stephen King um you know there there's there's something in the ether kind of feeling as opposed to writing uh, gritty, immediate, uh, grounded fiction.
1: That's a really interesting observation. It's basically what I love to read. So the, the Tuba series, you're right, it's, it butts up against sometimes horror and fantasy a little bit, but it always right. stays within the real world. But it does definitely incorporate some folklore and some fairy tales and that kind of thing. Whereas, and I love reading books like that, and I love... Writing those stories. And then with The Last Thing to Burn, it is very real, very tense, and very intense. And that is my, that's another side of me as a reader. You know, my favorite author is Cormac McCarthy, and my favorite novel is The Road. I like very intense, uh, dark stories uh, that are very short and uh, leave you thinking, my goodness, you know, I, I need to think about this some more. I need to talk to somebody about this book. That is what I feel like when I read The Road and when I reread The Road. And that's kind of what I, another thing that I like to write. So like any writer, I kind of get inspired by everything that I read and everything that touches me as a reader. So, the last thing to
0: burn, uh, because it is a, a, a bit of a departure in that it's not in the series that you um have written. Um, what was the, the first kernel of inspiration for this book? Um, you know, was it... Was it a, a, a character that walked on the stage of your mind? Was it something that, that you had read that you started playing the what-if game? You know, like, what if I did this? Or what if a character did this? Do you remember what that, that first moment where the story began to sprout up and, and you realized there was something there?
1: I do. I was lying in bed. It was midnight. I was awake. My wife was asleep. And I saw in my mind's eye in that strange borderland between wakefulness and sleep, I saw, in my mind's eye, this flat landscape, this enormous, sprawling, completely featureless farm. And in the center of the farm was a tiny little cottage, two, two rooms upstairs, two rooms downstairs. And I saw this from a kind of aerial point of view from above. And I saw a woman going in and out of the farm cottage and walking around it throughout the day, but she never went very far away from it. And I came to understand, like just after midnight, that she wanted to leave this place and she could not leave. And then between midnight and 6 a.m., I told myself the whole story. I'd visualized the entire story, or at least all the key scenes. And I knew where she had come from and I knew what she wanted. And I knew that she needed to get away from this place. And that's the first and last time that's ever happened to me, where I kind of woke up my wife at 6 a.m. And I say, I've got, I've got a book it was a very weird and very <laughs> intense night and uh that was back in 2016 so it still took me a long time to actually write the book wow this this book feels um
0: familiar in in a lot of ways and i, I don't mean that as uh uh as a uh, uh as a negative in any way um but there there are hints of um of stephen king uh, of of maybe misery. Uh, there are also hints of some stories that we've seen in the news over the last i don't know five or six years where um stories where 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 uh, a, a person has been discovered to have been uh, a long term prisoner of someone else and and the the weird things that start you know kind of uncovering from uh, from this being exposed um. Did were there any um, uh, influences that you were thinking of when you were telling the story and and maybe things that, you know, uh, well, I I know someone else has done this. Let me be sure to steer away from that. Or, uh, you know, I'm going to lean into this because I know it's been done here. And and I'm a fan of that. Do do, do you ever think about your influences when you're writing?
1: No, no, when I'm writing a first draft, I'm not that smart. Like first draft is me. It's me just trying to get the story out. It's like an exorcism. I write. I wrote the first draft of this book in three weeks, wow. and it was just me trying to get it out of my system. And then, once I'm rewriting and and tinkering with the language and so on, for the years to come, then I'm I start to think about yeah, where where are the influences? Where does this? What is this similar to? And so on. But when I'm actually writing the first draft, no, I'm just. It's just a very very weird fever dream kind of experience of me just trying to get it up, out onto the paper or into the laptop from my head without losing too much of its essence. And it has been likened to Room by Emma Donoghue and Misery by Stephen King, like you say. And that I think as a huge compliment, you know? Yeah. It's definitely similar in terms of... It's, the, the book is two characters, really, two main characters. One is holding the other captive on this farm, controlling her every... Movement, her every decision. So there's definitely similarities there, but there are also differences. Like obviously, with misery, he's trapped in that bedroom with the room. She's in that kind of garden room, that shed. Uh, with this, in a, in a sense, this is worse because she, they kind of have a charade of a marriage. Like he kind of it's like a farce of a marriage. So he thinks that she's his wife. That's how he acts and. So she's free to walk around the farm and do the things that he wants her to do, you know, in terms of cleaning and cooking and so on. So she can always see out. This is the difference. She can see hope. It's always just out of her stretch, out of her reach. She can see from, because the land is so flat on this farm, she can see kind of six or seven different church spires in the distance and a road with traffic and she can never get there. So I thought that was kind of extra horrific in a way that she's, constantly seeing civilization on the horizon and in the case of churches you know some sense of sanctuary or help but she can never quite make it
0: the um the idea of hope um that that plays out uh it, with the character of always being to being able to see those spires and and knowing that that it's just beyond reach um w- was that something that that uh, that fueled the writing for you? Was was the sense of hope, or was it uh, you know the antithesis of that? Was it um, uh, you know holding hope just out of her reach? Um, where did either one of those emotions kind of fuel the writing?
1: For sure, it's both of those things. Definitely, any, any human needs some kind of hope, and with the main character in this book. It's, it's a bleak existence. The first half of the book is bleak, but she has hope from a couple of different things. She gets hope from rereading of Mice and Men, which is the only book she has, one of her only possessions. She gets hope from like the memories of her family back home in Vietnam. She gets hope from a sense that there might be a future, and one day things might improve. Maybe Len, who is this farmer, maybe he'll have an accident one day. Maybe she'll get away. So yeah, I think hope is hugely important. I like dark fiction, but there needs to always be some light against that shade, even in the road, you know, which is incredibly bleak. You have right. those moments of like having a coke or eating those that that tin fruit, or just the, the the idea of trying to get to the ocean. So yeah, I think it's super important to have the darkness and to have the balance with with at least some hope. In the last thing to burn is. A
0: standalone, which we've, we've talked about, um, how is the, um, how is the process for you, um, different in writing a standalone or writing one of the, uh, the books in your series, uh, you know, with a series, you, you have, uh, a lot of the world building for, for lack of a better term already in place, uh, you know, characters that are going to be familiar to the readers, things that you don't have to recreate each time, um, but with a standalone, you get the freedom of it literally being anything that, that you can imagine. Uh, How's the process different for you?
1: I mean, it's exactly how you describe it. I love doing both. I love the series because I love writing to Vermudison, who is the protagonist, this young Swedish deaf journalist. I love writing her. She's great fun. She's a lot funnier than I am. She's just <laughs> a real blast to write. And I like dipping back into that imaginary world. You know, I, it's written in a fictional town. I like to kind of walk those streets in my mind at night, and I enjoy revisiting those characters. There's a lot of humor and warmth and friendship in those books, even though they're thrillers. So I I, I look forward to writing a new Tuba book each year, very very much. But with the standalones, it, I can just go wild. In in you know, with each one is totally different. I don't know if the main character is going to survive the book. They don't need to, and it's very. And it's very terrifying at the same time because I'm not sure it'll work. You know, I need to get the voice of that protagonist right early on. That needs to come to me. I know Tuba's voice very well. Feels very natural to me, but all of these new characters have to be completely themselves. They have to be true to to that individual character. So I love both. I get I get a, a high, a buzz when I write first draft. You know, I do maybe one or two a year for. Three or four weeks, and they are my favorite weeks of the whole year. I do enjoy them so much.
0: You know, most writers, when you talk to them, uh, might spend six months on a first draft. Um, is, is it always that way for you? Is it always kind of this this fever dream of, of just pounding the words out and 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 it just flowing out of you like that?
1: Yeah, so far. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future? But so far, and that comes out of terror. That comes out of my Because I can't hold up an imaginary world for six months, I'm just going to lose parts of it. I'm going to lose my connection with some of those characters. I can't write that intensely for six months, and I want to write intensely. It's the only way I can write. So if I write for three or four weeks first draft, then say for six months before that point, I've visualized the story and it's become it's kind of crystallized in my mind. So I know more of the details, more of the key scenes. I'm familiar with the Characters. I haven't written anything down. I don't write notes, but I, I see the book as I'm driving. I see the book before I go to bed each night. That's when I'm thinking about the book, the new book. And then when I write that first draft, it just pours out of me. It's got to a kind of tipping point where I have to write it. And I carve out three or four weeks where I'm not doing any publicity for anything. And I just hide away and I write a chapter in the morning, a chapter in the afternoon every day for about a month and the book's there, and I'm exhausted, and I'm relieved. That's the only way I can do it. So I'm like a zombie for a month. And I don't think Mrs. Dean would let me do it for six months because <laughs> you know, I do what I need to do. I wash up, I go and pick up my kid from his school in the next forest, I do these things, but I'm not mentally present for those weeks at all. I'm just thinking about the next scene.
0: Well, please don't change anything about your process, <laughs> uh, because if it's gonna change the books, um, please stay the way you are. Um, the new book, The Last Thing to Burn is, uh, is available right now if, if you're in the UK or in Australia. It will be available in the US uh, in April, April 20th, I believe is, is pub day here. Uh, will Dean is a, an, an author that you definitely need to follow. Um, we're we're going to put links in the show notes of this episode where people can grab The Last Thing to Burn either in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Um, however you love books, uh, you can get it in those formats. Um, Will, if people are just learning about you and want to follow along for all the stuff that you do, uh, is there a place they can connect with you online?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm on, I love, uh, social media. Some authors love it. Some don't, don't like it so much because I'm in the forest on my own. I love it. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Will R. Dean, and then I'm on YouTube as well at Will Dean Forest Author. And that is not really about my books. The YouTube channel is there so I can lift the lid a little bit on publishing, how to write a query letter, how to write the first draft, how different parts of the publishing world work, so that writers who are just starting out get a bit of an insight because it can seem like a secret world and seem quite impenetrable. So I wanted to kind of answer questions and and try to help out the next bunch of writers coming through. Excellent. We'll put links to all those places in the show notes as well.
0: Uh, Will, this has been so much fun uh, chatting. I absolutely love the new book, The Last Thing to Burn, and I hope everyone gets it and, uh, and falls in love with your writing. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Hank. This has been fun. Thank you. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Bad Company Complete Series Omnibus Books 1-7 through Humanity's Greatest Export Justice Space is a dangerous place even for the wary especially for the unprepared the aliens have no idea Here comes the Bad Company The Bad Company Book 1 Colonel Terry Henry Walton takes his warriors into battle for a price in this first installment of The Bad Company He believes in the moral high ground and is happy to get paid for his role in securing it. Set in the Kutharian Gambit universe, Terry, Char, and their people-humans, werewolves, were-tigers, and vampires form the core of the Bad Company's direct action branch, a private conflict solution enterprise. Join them as they fight their way across Tissakinen, 4, where none of the warring parties were what they expected. The seven-book series omnibus includes The Bad Company, Blockade, Price of Freedom, Liberation, Destroyer, Discovery, Overwhelming Force. Grab the complete Bad Company series by Craig Martell now. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Anderley. Virtudis Gloria Mercis. Translation, glory is the reward of valor. Fed up with playing the normal game, recent university graduate, ex-cum laude, ex-soccer star, ex-popular and mostly broke, Kara Madano changes her life when she decides to research how to be a witch and believes it. Kara didn't want to go back east and deal with her overbearing mom, so when university was done, she stayed behind in Los Angeles. Little did she realize how controlling moms can be from the other side of the country. Feeling a little desperate to make her own way, She buys a few books on business, and one on a lark, How to Be a Badass Witch. That's when the trouble started. Find out just what trouble a young woman can get into when the magic just might be real. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Andrews.